The reading is from Revelations 21. It's verses 1 to 8. And it's on page 1249. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second to death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jenny did ask whether we should stop at verse 7, but I thought we could do with a bit of verse 8 this morning. Um, I'm not going to spend all morning looking at verse 8, but if you'd like me to, I can. Uh, Let's just pray for a moment. Father, I want to thank you this morning that you are incredibly gracious and kind to us. That, Father, you don't give us what we deserve. But in mercy... extraordinary mercy you've reached out to us father I ask this morning as we continue to worship do come to us again where we're broken 
where we need healing. That you would come with a restorer's touch, a healer's touch. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Those who know me well will know that I'm no literature expert. There's someone on my left here who is a bit of a literature expert. Um, um, But uh, one thing I do know, apparently, is is that Charles Dickens wrote one of the most famous books where the beginning of the book is actually one of the most famous pieces of literature that was actually written, the opening lines of a piece of literature. And it's in a book called A Tale of Two Cities. I actually read it at school, didn't enjoy any of it, Uh, It didn't leave an impression other than the fact that I didn't want to read Dickens ever again, and so I didn't. Um, But actually, it's incredibly well known, and this is how it starts. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, I would argue that it feels very contemporary. Very contemporary. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I, maybe more than you, get the opportunity and the blessing of hearing beautiful stories most weeks. Of God blessing individual lives, God's answering prayers. Of seeing God healing someone gently, maybe, or dramatically. Of God speaking in a way of people beginning to step into what God feels they're called to of people encountering God. And that's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I also have a week that's full of people who are worried about health issues, maybe go to cancer diagnosis, their family relationships are broken. Broken. Work problems, issues to do with mental health, actually... That's the reality, too. The book of Revelation comes um, from, moves from an amazing feast of the church and Jesus to warfare against the Antichrist. Wedding and warfare. Feasting and fighting. Blessing and battling. Conversions and conflict. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. To put it in kingdom language, it's the experience of the already of God's kingdom and the not yet of this world. Revelation, for those of you who read bits of it, will realize draws quite clear lines in the book of Revelation. And those clear lines are designed to wake us up, to awaken us to the ugliness of sin and the brokenness and the 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 evidence of evil in our world and actually the beauty, the wonder of God's holiness and God's goodness. And the thing with prophets, I don't know whether you've spent much time with prophetic people or people of prophecy, they don't use words lazily. They don't use words that they don't really mean. They don't use words lazily or weaselly, we might sometimes say porridge to weasels. But in, in practice, 
That's not how prophets work. And the end of Revelation chapter 21 comes to us, I would argue. It came to me certainly again this week like water in a desert. Like water in a desert. A glorious and wondrous vision of the splendor and majesty of God. And actually even more so on a day like today of remembrance where we dare to look into the darkness. We dare to look at the reality of all that's around us that is broken and not pretend it's not there. And we try not to flinch. This week I re-looked at a bit of Sam Mendes' famous war film, 1917. And if you've watched that film or you've watched other war films, you'll realize that often you come away just shocked, appalled, sad, moved, but also, I don't know, angry? Do you feel angry at our ability to destroy so much? About our ability to be so cruel? Our inhumanity? Just the kind of senselessness in some senses of life and our casual destruction. War has an ability to do that, to casually destroy. And of course, the thing about those stories and what we often like to do is say, well, do you know what? That was them. That's not our story. We're not like that. But of course, it is our story. This is our story. Their evil is our evil. Their violence is our violence. We may live in this leafy suburb of a beautiful city like Bath, but the problem is ours. It's cheery this morning, isn't it? Social commentators argue that it was actually at the point right after World War I that a major part of the educated classes, the leading academics, people in technology, people in business and government, essentially started to move away from Christianity, Christian thinking in the world. Because as they saw it, they said that was one of the defining things in the Christian world and Christendom. But actually none of that thinking had saved 20 million deaths, 20 million deaths in World War I. Or 21 people injured. And so for those in the kind of society, they say, well, what use is that kind of structure and framework? But actually, if you've read the Bible or you know something about Christianity, you'll see that the Bible is very realistic about the condition of the human life and the human heart. The Bible does talk about darkness, does talk about personal sin, does talk about evil, does talk about brokenness and, and badness in all sorts of places. The Bible paints the human heart aside from Christ it's as sinful. No human being, the Bible says, and it has some incredibly strong things to say. No, no person can know the deceit and corruption and the cruelty that you and I, you and I, are capable of. That we are capable 
of that. Now, I know it's not fashionable to talk about that, but actually any honesty, any honesty of you in your life and your culture will recognize that actually you get to witness your own, some of your own darkness, some of the own difficult things in your life. And my hope is that you're not surprised in a way by that. You're honest about that. This week, as part of thinking about this, I was reading some of the, um, some of the stuff that's on people who are essentially called nihilists, people who are kind of essentially saying there's people like Nietzsche and some of the writings of Thomas Hardy, the poet, that are so depressing, that are so negative about the state of the world and the sta- about the state of where things are. And actually read them, and one of the interesting things when you read them is that even though they're analyzing the world and analyzing other people, very few of them get to the point where they say, I'm the problem. It's not the problem is elsewhere. The problem is with culture. The problem is this group of people. They never say, it starts here. The Bible is very clear. It says that I am, I am the problem. You are the problem. And we're called to do something about it. The worst of times. The human condition. Last week I had a fascinating conversation with someone who wanted to meet up, not someone from here. And I sat and I didn't know what the conversation was going to be. And it was all about trying to make sense of why this person and the people around him seemed to be doing so many nasty things to each other. And they were all in church. They wanted to try and make sense of the fullness of this world, of what's the nature of what it means to do bad, about evil and sin and brokenness. And it's fascinating. So I wonder, do you agree that there is a worst of times? That actually isn't necessarily just that someone over there might be racist, sexist, or misogynistic but it might be me. And I'm prepared to take responsibility for that. At the turn, uh, famously, at the turn of the 19th century, there was a really famous couple uh, called Lord and Lady Passfield who were very high-profile social reformers. Uh, Apparently, they were raised in the Church of England, and then they abandoned Christianity, and they set up the, the the roots of the British Social Welfare Society system. And so 35 years later, after starting this off and getting it going, in 1925, Lady Passfield wrote this. She said in in 1890, sorry, she actually wrote in her diary 35 years before, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. I've staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and the instinctive instincts in humankind and how little you can change these. For example, greed of wealth and power. She says, no amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb these evil impulses and set free the good, is how she described it. All of us longing for the good that our lives will be defined by goodness, none of the darkness, none of the brokenness, none of the negative stuff. How can they do that without ethics? And she went on to say, how can we do that without belief in a spirit of love? That's as close as she would go to saying there was a need for a God. Because if there's no God, what do we do? 
It's just us trying hard to do better. There have been, apparently in the last um, number of years, in 2010, there have been times when people have been incredibly optimistic for society as a whole. Right after kind of really dark periods like World War I, World War II, Berlin World, people were so optimistic that a better life would be around the corner. But ultimately, it's lays to the same sense of disappointment. And what happens is our hearts then become cynical. We become fatalistic. We become passive because it never materialized. The optimism, as those who know of the world of human thinking, will never last because ultimately it's founded in something that will fade. Whether it's technology, it's AI, it's science, it's art, whatever you put your trust in, your faith in for the better future, it's based on things that will not last, that will always change. And one of the kind of things, part of the reason we can face the darkness of the world, the Christians can face up to all that's broken in the world, is because our future is set on something that is eternal and doesn't fade and outlasts everything else. Revelation provides a beautiful picture of hope amidst the wreckage of sin, brokenness, and evil in the world. A new heaven and a new earth. Earthly renewal, spiritual renewal, a beautiful vision of holiness and harmony, of God and humankind finally at peace. Do you long for that? Do you long for harmony everywhere? Not just in one relationship or one person you particularly like, but everywhere. That God would be dwelling with us and us with God. You think, well, what does that look like? And if you just want a little glimpse this morning to think about it, is look at Jesus. Do you remember Jesus after he died and rose again? After his resurrection, he comes to see his apostles. And he comes, Jesus walks through locked doors. And he sits down and he eats with his apostle, the, the apostles. And they think he's a ghost because they saw him die. Saw him resurrect, they think he's a ghost. And yet he's not. He has a glorified body. New heavens. New earth. We see a picture in Jesus of some of our promise. The glorious wonder of new creation where beauty will last forever. Where we're going to run and not grow weary. Do you know, and I don't know about you, but I come across lots of people who are very weary, and at times that's true for me too. Just the harshness of trying to make, it, make, make a way in the world. And we find ourselves uh, encircled by, by weariness and cynicism. And we begin to lose hope for where we are. But the Bible holds a beautiful vision of the best of times. That the worst of times are real, but there's something about the best of times that is ours, that's possible and inevitable. Everything is going to be wiped clean. Everything is going to be glorious. Everything. And that's a beautiful picture for us this morning, when Paul writes um, in, the book, uh, in the book of Titus, Paul says this, is for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Do you see that? Eagerly anticipating blessed hope. We wait for blessed hope. And of course, how do we receive that? How do we um, take that for ourselves or see that for ourselves this morning? God has erupted into our universe. He's broken the hole in the ceiling as Jesus comes to us in the midst of all the muck and the dirt and the brokenness and the darkness of this world. Jesus has come to us down amongst all that worst of times, in the midst of all of that worst of times, bringing the future into our present, breaking the power of sin, death, and hell, and putting all under his feet. You read the Bible and you'll see that Christians are full of hope. Hope is one of the things that defines us as a people. We don't need to be faithless, however tough things are. We are people of hope. Why? Because what's coming is a new heavens and a new earth. Everything. God means that actually if we're with and in Christ, that actually our future is secure. Our lives aren't here by chance that we get an opportunity to walk with God in the real world with him and not feel like we're constantly all at sea, not knowing that our future is secure. And actually while tomorrow or next week you may be facing all sorts of health challenges, work challenges, family challenges, there are reasons for, for us to kind of think, ultimately, our ultimate reality is security with God for eternity. The future for Christians is our friend. The future for Christians is our friend. It's why with the kind of funerals we had last week, funeral with Darren and this funeral coming up, is that mixture of grieving but also incredible celebration of the promise that it's ours as Christians. You don't have to be afraid of the future anymore. You don't have to be defined by fear of the future because the ultimate future, the ultimate hope is done, is secure. It's what Christians are and who we are. We are people of hope. It's what we were built for. It's what we were designed for. God came for you and I so we could live, taste, see the best of times. Some of the best of times here on earth as the kingdom of God comes amongst us. And the thing about that this morning is this. You can go searching for that in everything culture has to offer, but you'll never find it outside Christ. You will never find the assurance of that hope outside Christ. Come this morning as you are this morning. Allow his blessed hope to renew hope in you today. Amen.